0: companies like Alibaba, and many of the great tech companies that you see uh, today have that element of a leader, one who not only sets direction, but also integrates his or her own vision into the DNA of the organization so that the individuals themselves will drive it. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada.
1: My next guest is not only a brand new author of a book called The Tau of Alibaba, but he served as a vice president of Alibaba Group. And he also, in fact, he's an internet executive with over 20 years of management experience in e-commerce and digital media in greater China, Asia, U.S., and Europe. During his time away from Alibaba, Brian has now become an angel investor, an executive at McGraw-Hill Companies, helped out management consulting, and served as a special assistant to Mayor Willie Brown in San Francisco. Now in this conversation, we dive into his time at Alibaba, what he learned. So here we're going to go into mission, vision, values, how those drove this company to be able to grow, how we can take that and put it into our business as well. Leading without leading. That that was a beautiful talk that we have. And of course, we bring up TikTok, which you're going to have to wait until the end on that one. But we talk about the different philosophies in Western civilization versus Eastern civilization. This one's jam-packed. Get ready for Brian Wong. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts. I'm your host Tristan Almada and I've got somebody with me today that I'm first of all I'm very impressed with the book, very fun to read, a lot a lot of knowledge in there. It's called The Tawali Baba. You've got to pick it up. Brian Wong is joining me from Singapore. Brian, what's the deal with the amazing background you've got?
0: <laughs> tristan um i um i'm sitting at a gift shop actually it's it's about <laughs> seven in the morning and you know i couldn't find a quiet place in this resort a lot of little kids running around so i felt uh, i got them to specifically open up this place before it it, it, it goes into business and i'm sitting like in, in in the gift shop alone but this is as quiet a place as i can find who
1: did you have to bribe for that man'
0: You know, just a lot of persuasion. Um, <laughs> I, I told them it was a very important conversation. Uh, and they said, okay, well, this is the best we can do. So I'm I'm grateful either way. Is that part of the DAO
1: of Alibaba or no? <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, you got to go with the flow. You know, I want to use the conference rooms. I said, sorry, there's a wedding. Uh, they have a hospitality lounge. But you have people walking in and out. So I found the path and I ended up here and I'm happy. All right. Hopefully you're happy.
1: I'm I'm super I'm just happy that we got you, man. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Let's head right into it. What okay. made you want to tell us this story in the way that you did? What what was the inspiration?
0: Well, you know, uh, Tristan, I'm um, as you read in the book, I'm originally from California. I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, and I've always been surrounded by, you know, tech and and all the things happening, but it really did start to take off right after college. Um when I graduated from college, uh, you know, things like companies like Yahoo and and eBay were all emerging. But ironically, I ended up going to China to pursue um, an opportunity at this startup at the time, which was called Alibaba. Um, And writing the book for me was really a way that I felt um, I could share that experience um, and story that I felt as a California kid kind of growing up was really important for, you know, my Peers and, and friends to understand so that they could see and complete sort of their understanding of what's happening in the world vis-a-vis technology and how that's changing society. Um, I think that, you know, over the last 20 years, there's been lots of changes in the world. Um, and technology has become such a big part of our lives. But what we haven't been able to fully understand, at least from a US perspective, because I travel back and forth between you know the two countries, is 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 really what uh, f- is to fully appreciate what's happening, uh, kind of in 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 Asia, um, and how that is kind of intersecting with what we know um, in the West. And I yeah. think that there's a lot of fear and concern about something that is becoming, you know, more competitive with kind of you know the United States as a country, but also uncertainty in terms of how that's going to affect the way we live and interact, kind of um, as 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 people around the world and. I wanted to show that there are things to be learned. There's lessons to be learned, but also the mindset and the psychology or maybe even the philosophy by which some of these leaders in in places like China go about things is influenced by this Eastern philosophy. And, you know, I think you're from the West Coast as well. I grew up in the Bay Area and and we hear terms like Taoism and, and, you know, Eastern philosophy, whether it's Buddhism and whatnot, all the time. But how does it really impact our day-to-day lives? How does it affect the way people think about doing business? And I found that to be very fascinating in the almost 20 years that I worked at, at Alibaba. So that this book is the best effort that I can make to share that. And there's a lot in there in the book. Um, it covers kind of macro uh, sort of the situation in, in terms of what was happening at China in China at that time. But it also goes into the micro, which is the the management principles uh, that guided decisions that were being made, big decisions that resulted in the creation of one of the largest um, e-commerce companies or the largest e-commerce company in the world. And then thinking about the the ramifications of of this technology, this ecosystem, and what I call a new development model, which uh, frankly had professional. Found impact on places like Southeast Asia, even now, uh, places like Africa and Latin America, in terms of thinking about how does technology play a role in creating a more inclusive development uh, sort of paradigm for for bringing jobs to society and opportunities to people who are previously not part of the mainstream economy.
1: All right, I like I like that man. It makes a lot of sense that you would then go through it and just kind of reflect and put it into paper for us. Yeah. So. That does make sense with the management principles that you're talking about. What were the ones that stood out that you say, wow, you know what? Those those made a lot of sense. And that's why we got to where we got to.
0: Well, you know, I would say that what I found in, in, in the time working with, with Jack and at the company is there are some universal principles, regardless if you're in the US or in China or elsewhere, that I think um really just reflect um the the importance of, of uh you know. Uh, how should I say? Well, the principles being um, having a clear mission, vision, and set of values in an organization. I, th- those across the board, you know, you read books like Good to Great, you read books about some of the great businesses in the US. Um, and you and we, and we even visited a number of these during uh, our time at Alibaba. Those companies have been around for over a hundred years. And what's very, very clear is uh, each of these organizations have a very clear purpose as to why they existed. And that's something that's constantly re, um, brought up and reminded to uh, the employees or the people uh, working there. Live and breathe that purpose. Uh, vision is really kind of giving um, the the team and the staff a clear idea as what what that mission looks like in in a very sort of uh, how should I say concrete uh, form. So you know how do you sort of make that into a reality through the vision. And then the values is the principles by which um, they go about their work and make decisions, and I think that uh, at Alibaba that was very much the case. Um, Jack, the founder, uh, was a teacher, um, and he really had a, you know an approach that was was about empowerment. We can talk about that later in terms of leadership style, but yeah. that sort of spirit by which he was trying to empower uh, those at the company was it baked into its values, and so the mission is to make it easy to do business anywhere which is really focusing on helping small businesses the vision um every 5 10 years we would set um that was trying to reach certain goals uh and then the values were how we make those decisions so to me those those three elements are very important
1: okay so with those with the vision specifically do you feel from from being both western and and eastern right yeah. do you feel like the vision plays a much bigger role in businesses in the east than it does in the west
0: you know definitely for alibaba that was the case and i think that was why uh it has been so successful for you know uh these last 20 years it the the mission is what gives it its purpose but you know When we say to make it easy to do business anywhere, you know, initially that's e-commerce, but then it moved to payment and then it moved to logistics and then it moved to cloud computing. And all of these things were geared towards helping small businesses, but it wasn't just, you know, a one trick pony. It wasn't just trying to do one thing. um, And then that's all that the business stands for. It it sort of evolved. And I think that for many people that joined the company at the beginning, it was this uh, purpose of helping the underdog, so to speak, that attracted them. And I think that is where Jack's uh, leadership ability was was so impressive, is that Mm. someone who was just an English teacher that didn't have a technology background, didn't have a business background, was able to convince some of the best minds to join because they believed in that that mission.
1: I like that. Well, let's talk about that empowerment for a little bit because that's part of why you were there and you grew as part of that as well. So, with with jack and the empowerment that he had what do you mean by it how did he empower you and those around him
0: well so i mean the irony is that while he was a teacher well while he didn't have a technology background he didn't have a business background he he was a teacher and what he would do is bring people in and say hey this is where we want to go and i believe that you can do this. I believe in your abilities. Um, and let's, let's figure this out together. <clears throat> and that sounds very simple on the surface, but I think also when you create an environment that gives someone that sense of ownership, um, that sense of, mm. uh, that, that, that opportunity to fail, but still keep trying, um, and then learning from that failure. Um, I think that creates a much more dynamic environment that, Motivates people because they feel like it's on them to achieve what it is that we all agree on. Um, We often say that, or Alibaba, they say that you know an organization is just a group of people coming together for a common purpose, and um, you know that purpose, as I mentioned before, is what what binds everyone. Um, And I think that, yeah, so 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 yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I would see. This the empowerment, you know, playing an important role. It was sort of his Jack's second nature to to create uh, that sort of environment for uh, his staff because of his background as as a teacher prior, previously.
1: I like that. And, and what you were saying with the the failure part and using that to be able to kind of use it as a benchmark and then grow from there is yeah. that typically what we find in Eastern philosophy or more in Western.
0: I'm not really sure how, how to answer that because I mean failure, I guess. Um obviously there, there are sides. I mean, Eastern philosophy has many elements. So there's there's Taoism, which is much more of a fluid dynamic um uh, interaction and balance between this yin and yang, but then there's Confucianism, which is very, very structured, right? And it's, yeah. it's very kind of didactic. So you can have both extremes. But I think that what I would say, you asked that question, you know. What kind of defines the characteristics of Eastern philosophy? It's more of the holistic approach. Um, you know, Taoism talks about um, this balance. And I, again, I get into this in my book of, of these contradictions and um, the unity of contradictions. So, how do you embrace, um, you know, the, the two sort of opposites? Um, and it's more of a dynamic balance as opposed to a, a right and wrong. Um, and so, I would say, And also looking at an ecosystem, for example, I think that Alibaba evolved in the way it did because there was a recognition that this isn't just buying and selling as a marketplace. Um, This is uh, a platform that has buyers and sellers, but there are many other factors involved that need to be addressed uh, in order to create a healthy ecosystem. And so I think that if you if you want to highlight kind of the Eastern characteristics that played into this, it's more the holistic view versus, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a reductionist view. And one of the things I've always wondered is why haven't there been super app platforms, for example, be, that have emerged from the West. They all seem to be coming from the East. There's, there's Alibaba, but there's also a company called Tencent that has a, a messaging, uh, tool called WeChat, but that integrates like payment and, uh, you know, video and all these different things. And um, you hear people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and even Microsoft recently talking about creating super apps. But uh, in the past, in the the West, in Silicon Valley, it's been about specialization. Everybody wants to do one thing and do it really, really well. Whereas in the East, you kind of see this integration of many different functions.
1: Oh, man, I like that. That's interesting. Yeah. Interesting how, how you you do see that now that you're talking about it. I definitely yeah. see that in the in the philosophical approach, right? Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned because I'm I'm about three fourths of the way in your book. Okay, and in it, chapter eight. Uh, okay. So for those of you who are going to get the book, uh, the Dao of Alibaba, chapter eight, uh, performance management. Because we just talked okay. about kind of like a more holistic approach right yeah so it reminded me of that chapter which is like going beyond kpis yeah So yes. talk to me about that
0: so um you know I noticed you had a um Bruce Lee quote on your website and uh <laughs> I do, it, yes. yeah um and I I don't know if you remember this film called Enter the Dragon um, dude, but it, obviously I <laughs> dude, nice. Okay. So, you know, in the opening scene, he sees that kid, he's like, you know, kick me, right? And the guy's like, tries to kick him. And he's like, what was that an exhibition? And then he has this line, he says, don't think, feel, it's like a finger pointing to the moon. Don't concentrate on the, on the finger, or you'll miss all the heavenly glory. Now, For so many years, I was like, what the heck is he saying? And I watched that scene over and over. (laughs) Maybe maybe you figured it out. Do you you know what he was going at what he was getting at? Well, now that you're talking to me about it, I might. (laughs) I never put it together until right now. Let let me give you my interpretation. Because, and this didn't hit me until writing the book. I'm like, holy cow, Bruce Lee was the master of Taoism. Because everything that he talks about is also just like Jack speaks. It's in riddles, right? But there is a, there is a whole um, philosophy behind this. When he says, don't focus on the uh, the, the finger or you miss all the heavenly glory, because he's pointing, right? It's like a finger pointing the, to the moon. But don't focus on the finger or you miss all the heavenly glory. Um, yeah. uh, what he's saying is the same thing of KPIs. If you focus on <clears throat> like the how-to and you forget the why, then you're missing the heavenly glory. In the same way, in a business, if you're just focusing on like <clears throat> profitability or you know how many customers I'm I'm going to get uh, you know next uh, month or you know all these different metrics which are important, um, but you know oftentimes people get this is what's happening in corporate um, you know the corporate world too when you're managing for the quarterly earnings but you're forgetting. The the, the the greater purpose of the organization and what we talked about the mission then you're essentially um missing the most important part of why you're at the organization and so when we say beyond kpis what we're saying is um while the kpis are important there's a much bigger objective in, in why we create a business and that's what's really fueled um mm-hmm. you know this innovation this motivation the spirit of creating something from nothing at a company like alibaba Got it, man. Yeah, because when when Alibaba was founded, first of all, China had a per capita income of eight hundred dollars. It had eight million internet people. Uh, sorry, eight hundred. Uh, sorry, eight million internet users um, online at the time. And Jack was an English teacher. If you add up all those different elements, you'd say the chance of success was very, very slim. Like, why would you want to create a company in an environment that didn't have any users on the internet at the time? And why would you back a guy who had no business or technology background? Yeah. And, um, you know, today there's over a billion internet users in China. The per capita income is $10,000. Um, and Alibaba is the, one of the largest internet companies in the world. Yeah. But again, it's because, as I mentioned before a few times, this company, uh, in terms of its creation, was geared towards, um, you know, focusing on something very, very compelling. and um, didn't just think okay, how do we make money uh, only be you know being the main purpose, the main purpose being how do we actually serve those who are marginalized or disenfranchised or not part of the main system? And so when you talk about beyond KPIs, it's about maintaining that focus and that balance of of the the priorities and what you do.
1: Okay, that makes that makes sense like that. I have a question about OKRs because oh yeah, it sounds like you're touching on them, but I feel like from your explanation, it goes way past it and deeper than just OKRs.
0: Well, I think OKRs are definitely a good bridge between, you know, the the, the higher sort of mission and the, the KPIs. And to be honest, we didn't start, Alibaba didn't start using OKRs until more recently, but it is definitely a very effective bridge and kind of re- reminding people, as to why they're doing uh why they're trying to pursue and hit those those different metrics. But
1: in using OKRs, yeah. do you think we sometimes lose perspective of the reason why we're doing it? Because at the very beginning, yeah, you mentioned regardless of how Alibaba evolved through the years, yeah, the key was helping small businesses grow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I feel like sometimes in OKRs, it's like oh, sometimes it gets a little cloudy because they're still they're still held up by KPIs. Right. So, yes. Yes. How, how do you see OKRs when you were growing, when you were part of this growth with Alibaba?
0: I mean, to be perfect. Perfectly honest. During the time I was there, we didn't really implement uh, OKRs until after I had left the company. That's, that's how recent thought. it was. was like, <laughs> how did how did
1: you operate? Because I, I think that's a more holistic approach, and I, I actually yeah. like that a lot more.
0: Well, I spent a lot of time with customers um, and in the field to understand how the technology we were creating was actually helping and changing their their work and their their businesses, and then kind of seeing. Um, you know the the overall impact of of or, or potential impact of, of how this could help solve the the issues that they were facing and so i think that while we have a, a product team um that's always trying to create you know these these new services and whatnot it's it's very important to always remind yourself uh you know why we're doing it and and, and what problem we're trying to solve and i think for us at least at the at the time a lot of the development was being done in China, of the different services and tools, which was serving the main market that, you know, there in local country, but I was in charge of also the international markets. And so, trying to really understand how that translates into meeting the needs of um, small businesses in places like Turkey, India, Vietnam, was also very important. And so, for me, the greater purpose was always going back to what are the problems we're trying to solve in the local markets. And then the KPIs were a reflection of whether or not you're making that impact and measuring that impact, but not forgetting, you know, the bigger picture.
1: Got it. Okay. I like that answer, man. Now, look, at this is a, a much broader question. So I don't know how you okay get this one, but in working with, in a business or organization that's in the United States, when we're looking to work with an organization or business in China, What do you think the key factors are in being able to bridge the gap that we seem to, at least from what I look at, like we always butt heads and we're like, oh, we don't end up working together? Yeah. What do you think the reasoning is behind that and how can we go around
0: that? Okay. I mean, at the risk of using generalizations, but still trying to give something that's useful, um, you know, I think Chinese entrepreneurs, uh, the ones that I've worked with, are very pragmatic, very practical. So if, you know, like any business, if, if you're gonna come up with a deal that's gonna um you know benefit them in terms of how you work with them the partnership that first and foremost is 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 um the starting point but i think the and they work very hard mind you i mean you know there's so much competition in the market here that only if you grind it out and are working 24 7 can you actually be competitive so i think that's actually a very positive thing when you're working with these Chinese uh, entrepreneurs or companies that you know they're going to be devoting everything to making sure the business is success, And I think that, to some extent, is why China has grown so quickly and expanded so so rapidly. But I think the biggest challenge i found in working in the environment is this constant change that, for many of us in the West, is a bit frustrating, particularly when you agree on doing something one way and then they're like, ah, I don't think this is gonna quite work. Yeah, we signed the contract. Yeah, but I think maybe we should approach it this way or that way. And to me, that's like the biggest headache because it's like, yo, we kind of agreed on this, and why are you trying to change the terms after the fact? And this gets into this this yin yang kind of fluidity, where essentially they're trying to adapt to a, an environment that, you know, particularly in China, it's always changing. I mean, when I, if you go to Shanghai. Uh, after six months. I mean, this is like pre-COVID time, but I guess even during COVID, there's changes, but not necessarily for the better. But, you know, there's always things that are, you know, new buildings or things are, you know, changing at a pace that you don't even recognize it. And so part of the mentality, I think, of the business owners is they have to be willing to adapt and change at the drop of a dime. And I think that, you got to go in and be ready for that, but all at the same time, maintain your principles in terms of what is obviously important for the business partnership to be successful. But always trying to think—you know—one two steps forward. What if this happens? What if that happens? And I think probably the frustrations will be diminished. You know, at, at Alibaba, they had a value of the six values. One was called embrace change, and that was really to acknowledge the fact that the. Country was the fastest growing economy at that time. It was in the fastest growing industry at that time. So you imagine the rate of change that was happening. And any employee that worked uh, at the company had to be willing to change according to those situations. And now the value has been revised. Now it's just change is the only constant. Which I know that you talk about that in many of your talks. Yeah. But it's just something we need to accept in the world today. And I think it's now becoming even more the case. All over the world but in china in particular it's something they just embraced or at alibaba specifically
1: not i like that i like to embrace embrace change On this change is constant interesting the progression of that i like that yeah <laughs> all right so you've got rad is it rad too or R? radii radii, radii. Got
0: yeah yeah all
1: right and I, i'm taking a look at the site and okay I, I like it it's very different but i like the way it flows yeah so explain me the idea of Radii. By the way, guys, I'm looking at R-A-D-I-I dot C-O if you want to look at it with me. So tell me about that.
0: Uh, I'm honored that you took the time to check that out. Thank you, Tristan. Radii is really a, um, it was a pet project that I started when I was at Alibaba. And it's now what I'm kind of focusing my time on. It's focused on youth culture that's emerging uh, from China and the region. Music, film, arts, design, uh, even tech, but its intersection with society. And what I'm trying to uh, reflect in this is, is the change that's happening in Chinese youth culture, because it's not a monolith. The country's not a monolith. There are pockets of very extreme creativity in groups, whether it's the big cities or even the countryside in in third fourth tier cities, you'll see. We just released a film on reggae in Yunnan. Most people would never expect there to be uh, that music genre in uh, a rural part. Yunnan is southwest China. It's like the furthest you know from the big cities, but they have probably the most diverse set of minority cultures there that have embraced uh, reggae style and they've made it their own. The the Wa minority the there's, there's a bunch of these groups that are producing some amazing music. There's hip-hop in Chengdu. And there's, you know, big EDM movement in Shenzhen. Shenzhen is, the, uh, you know, the tech center. But the way that people kind of escape from the stress of work is they go to you know, these rave parties and there are these massive clubs. So we wanted to kind of show that um, through the media and content that we create. And how does this relate to Alibaba? Well, um, I think that part of, again, the very beginning of our conversation, Tristan, you asked why I wrote the book. I think that we're in a time of great tension you know, between two countries, the United States and China. But yep. these two countries are the only countries in the world that are in a position to really solve what are the, the most pressing existential problems that we face as human beings. And being American and of Chinese descent, this is a very personal issue. So rather than to get into the fray of Politics and try and talk just about those issues. So, while, while I do think they're very important, I think one of the other more constructive things we can do is just demystify <clears throat> the cultures between one another and show that there are human beings behind all this. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, there uh, are 330 mainland Chinese that study in America in any one year. They, they love going to America to learn about the culture and about everything else uh, in America. But there's only 30,000 Americans that go to China to study. And you think about this huge disconnect in terms of <clears throat> mutual understanding, and it, and it really does start with the youth. To understand one another, you need to spend time with one another. Yeah. And so knowing that you know it's gonna be hard to convince you know another 300,000 American students to go to China anytime soon, I figure radii is a great way to kind of at least open, provide a window into that youth culture.
1: I like that, dude. You know, I was talking to Daryl Eves. He's, um, you know, Mr. Beast?
0: I've heard of it. Yeah, okay, yeah. So
1: YouTube, YouTube, Mr. Beast is like the biggest YouTuber on the planet. Yeah. And so Daryl Eves is his mentor. And we were talking about China. And he said, dude, you would be shocked to know that Chinese, the Chinese... Are way ahead of the United States on anything social media related.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I
1: was like, "Whoa, whoa,
0: dude, slow down!
1: Tell me about this. I wanted to know more." So you've experienced the growth of the internet. Yeah, in an amazing country, and now we we, we somehow in the U.S. are kind of closed out to what's happening, how fast it's yeah. growing. I don't think we fully understand how amazing social media is there and video content and everything. Yeah, Tell yeah, me about yeah. that. What what are we missing? What should we know?
0: Well, hey, hey thanks for bringing up this subject because I think I think you're right. There is a lot to be learned uh, from what's happening in China because social media has become s- such a big part of everyday life for the average Chinese youth. And, you know, granted, there's Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that here in, in, in the US, but the main driver in this Tristan is that when China went through its internet revolution there was very little in the way of retail and finance uh, infrastructure. There are you know 3.3 times more retail space per capita in the United States versus China even though China has four times the population. So what happened is the internet sort of filled in the gaps where you know people normally go to a shopping mall to buy stuff, when Taobao, which was an Alibaba creation, it's like an eBay uh, or you know, Amazon, when it came about, people immediately went to those platforms because that's where they could buy stuff that they can't find anywhere else. And when it came to payments, mm. you know the, the banking system was not that mature. There weren't even many credit cards. People went directly to digital payments. And so they started to um, you know do all their transactions online. So when you talk about social media, It was the same sort of thing. Rather than just use a traditional methods, people just jumping on instant messenger. And then the tools that emerged from instant messenger, like the voice and the video, became an everyday part of their lives. Today, there's 52% of China's retail is done on e-commerce. That's compared to 19% in the US, and I think 14% or, or less than that in the UK. And it's the only country today where a majority of the retail commerce is all done online. So when you combine like the, the social media with the commerce, it essentially becomes a whole nother virtual world where people live and breathe through their phones because that's how they get things done. And you know, my wife, it's funny. She's like, well, Brian, I don't know if I want to move to the U S so soon. I'm like, well, why? She's like, because, you know, I'd actually have to go to the grocery store to buy, you know, food to, to cook, you know, each night. Like, Seriously, it's like because they deliver all your groceries to your home in China. The first thing you do is wake up in the morning, you order your groceries, and then it's delivered to your door. And then, you know, you don't have to go out and do shopping and, you know, so many other conveniences. So yes, it's mainly because the adoption rates were much higher and it becomes an everyday part of your life, both in terms of communication, but also consumption and everything else.
1: Dude, are you saying introverts would have a lovely life in China?
0: You know, (laughs) Not too bad. Not too
1: bad. That sounds pretty good to me, man. What the hell are you doing in Singapore then?
0: (laughs) You know, we want to get a little bit of sun just coming down to, uh, because we haven't really left the country, China, uh, in like three years because of the COVID lockdowns and everything. So this has uh, been a nice refresher. I mean, I've personally left a few times, but I haven't been able to bring my little girls out. You know, they're one in three, so very young. Oh, they were
1: born through COVID?
0: Yeah. Yeah. COVID babies, man. Wow. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Dude, that's so... a whole nother talk.
0: Holy oh, yeah, cow. it is. Damn. But <laughs> Pl- plenty of good stories on that.
1: <laughs> All right. All right. So where do you think the opportunities lie as far as creation for what's next? Because I, I feel like the more I talk to people that that are working in China at a high level or with China at a high level, I keep on seeing the same theme. It's like they seem to be leading the way because now you just explained it like 50, you say 52%. Yeah, 52% of the population is is using a combination of e commerce at some
0: point. Well, 50, 52% of all retail sales in China is done on e commerce.
1: Retail sales. So, with yeah. that, like, what should we be looking out to apply or to do or to maybe just work more? With yeah, the United States, and saying you know what that that is something we should apply or at least look
0: into. Good question. Um, you know, despite all the um, the, the the concerns around dual use technology, semiconductor, um, let's put that aside because that's obviously a very political consideration. There's still a, plenty to learn in terms of applications of um, <clears throat> consumer e-commerce that that China has sort of uh, pioneered. And it's the things that we talked about, you know, um, how to make e-commerce kind of more prevalent uh, in, in terms of not just serving the consumer, but also helping small businesses. I think one of the most amazing things about this story, <clears> the <throat> last 20 years, which is also partly why I wrote the book, is to show how um, technology was created to serve these small businesses who, frankly, you know, many um companies in the past felt small businesses are not worth their time because the acquisition costs are so high and you get such little return from them, right? Mm -hmm. But somehow, companies like Alibaba figured out how to make that whole thing um, extremely profitable. Mm -hmm. And they did that by, number one, educating the market. Uh, I mean, the first five, 10 years of Alibaba's existence was basically just door-to-door sales people educating small business owners of why the internet matters to, to their companies. And then the second phase of this was really um, just trying to um, create these tools that made it easy for uh, these uh, small businesses to use because I think a lot of small businesses are not technologically sophisticated. So what um, you know, Alibaba did was to lower the barrier to entry by making the, the by simplifying things and not, um, you know, not scaring them away, uh, because of the complexity. And, and then I think what happened is it, it not only spread in the cities in terms of adoption rates for small businesses, but even to the rural countryside. And one of the questions I ask is like, how do you make this technology accessible to those of the furthest reaches in, in a society? Now there are villages that are doing, and I'm not, exaggerating your hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue uh, by selling their produce, that their farming products, they actually create their own industries where they'll manufacture things um, in their villages and sell it to the cities and even internationally. And so this is job creation, right? Uh, In rural communities where people were normally leaving villages and going into the cities, you had this hollowing out of villages because nobody wanted to live there because The quality of life was so poor and there was no job opportunities. Now people are returning to villages to work because they not only have jobs because created through e-commerce, but they have a quality of life because they have a natural surrounding. It's not these cities that are extremely crowded and the cost of living is so high, they have to live in like a little shoebox. Mm. So how China was able to achieve that, I think, is very interesting. And I will say this, Tristan, um, there is a role that government plays. Yeah. Uh the role that government plays is uh, by funding infrastructure, by creating a fertile environment where these digital uh, businesses can actually thrive. And you know the irony, um this is a for a much longer conversation, but you know with with the rise of China and its competitiveness, I'm seeing actually positive things happening in America in terms of inward looking and saying, what do we need to do to improve our competitiveness? So things like the Infrastructure Act, things like you know it's the the country's investment in technology, like uh, semiconductor, all that is actually very good for America. Think how how long it's been since we've invested in our infrastructure mm. in the states, right? So so when you go to China, you'll feel like oh my gosh, I'm living in the Jetson world because everything feels like postmodern. You've got you know brand new subways, high speed railways. I mean, you can go to virtually any big city in China today on on a high speed railway that goes 250 kilometers an hour, and the Excela is only electrified for certain parts of the East Coast. Let alone trying to get from East Coast to the West Coast, right? So you think about, um, and all this lowers logistics costs. It lowers transportation costs, and as a result, then products mm-hmm. are cheaper, things are more efficient. Um, I and then investing in education, STEM, and all these things. So I actually think that. <clears throat> there are lessons to be learned in terms of how government plays a role with private sector and then the role that private sector plays to actually help society as a whole, not just make a, the next unicorn and then list that, but also what are the services and products that these tech companies are providing that will actually help create more opportunity for the larger society. So that's a li- very long answer to your question of what you know we can learn. But I think, to me, that's the biggest takeaway.
1: No, you gave me a good answer, man. I, I think yeah. that that's definitely an opportunity. I agree. You mentioned yeah. leading without leading. Can yeah. you, I, I loved that, by the way. Yeah. I, I had seen it yes. in different ways before. Can you explain yeah. what you meant by that?
0: So, I mean, this is really kind of the highest form of leadership, right? I think Jim Collins talks about uh, level you know, one to five leadership and some people call it servant leadership. Um, This is very much, uh, I think, a Taoist principle as well. I talk about that um, quote of, you know, leading without leading. And I think this is when all the different elements I talked about at the beginning, mission, vision, and values align. Um, Then your organization will drive itself without you having to be in there kind of command and control. You basically set the direction and everybody marches in the, in the same direction, but they also carry it forward at a greater speed than you would expected, with greater creativity and innovation than you expected. And that's the ideal state. Obviously, it's it's easier said than done. But at the same time, I feel like companies like Alibaba and many of the great tech companies that you see uh, today have that element of a leader, one who not only sets direction but also integrates his or her own vision into the DNA of the organization so that the individuals themselves will drive it without having to ask their boss, is this okay? Or what should I do here? So that to me is the the, the principle of leading without leading.
1: Yeah. There's a lot more clarity that way. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Right. So you mentioned how we interact is very key to either the, the Western philosophy or the Eastern philosophy as far as getting along and, and yeah. better together. How do you think yeah. How do you think the Eastern philosophy worked really well with Alibaba in the sense that the interaction was so fluid because you brought the <laughs> fluidity up early on?
0: I think there was a turning point, I think it was 2009 or 10, where Jack started to realize that rather than us being just a matchmaking business, uh, we used the term platform of buyers and sellers that we were closer to like, a biological ecosystem where you know you have the water, you have the vegetation, you have the animals, you have the fish, you have the oxygen. And he, he invited some people from like the nature conservancy and a bunch of other organizations to give talks on ecosystem. And I know today this doesn't sound as as, as novel or unique, but you know, back then um, it was something quite uh, you know, it was a fresher, it was a fresh perspective. To think about um, how uh, the company should should see itself, so I think that once the, we took that sort of approach, then we started to have a greater sense of responsibility in terms of how we were helping. Um, not that we didn't from the start, but we had an even greater sense of responsibility of of how we're supposed to help our community and the ecosystem. And so the things that we did for uh, the companies, um, for example, there was. Um, and this was even before the ecosystem conversation, but I feel like this is all part of the thinking of Jack. During the financial crisis in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, the whole world was in a tailspin. But a lot of the Chinese manufacturers suffered uh, because of the uh, you know the Western markets uh, were no longer buying their products, and there was this huge um, you know capacity excess capacity in in, in these businesses, and so. Um, we were facing some big challenges, but what Jack said is, we need to help these guys survive. Let's cut the prices of our services and help them get through this these challenging times. That uh, I think was was a very strong statement of of the commitment of you know why we exist in terms of trying to help our 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 customers. But then when you think about things like these world development projects that we've been doing, um, a lot of people would say, why would you touch? the the rural communities, um, there's no money to be made there. Uh and at the beginning, we'd send out uh, a lot of our salespeople who agreed to do this to the the hinterland essentially, and they were set up these posts to actually educate the rural communities about what is e-commerce. And initially uh that looked like a futile act, but over time, what you, you saw is these little phenomena called Taobao villages where I talked about these clusters uh, where these these um, farmers were able to sell their products through e-commerce and whatnot, uh, and they were able to create these little manufacturing clusters, and that actually started to produce yield results in terms of the business. But to kind of make the first move and go out and do that required a leap of faith. But Jack's whole thinking was, you know, we need to fulfill our mission, and we need to actually ensure that. Um, <clears throat> You know, those who are not being served are going to be brought into this larger ecosystem with a long-term view that uh everything will fit together and, and actually uh sort of prosper together. And so I think that those ideas in terms of the flow, uh, sometimes making the first move without um getting an immediate sort of financial return really did number one, it 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 was a long-term strategy that paid dividends in, in, uh, over time, but two, it also signaled to the the markets, like, you know, the commitment that the company had. And then that became a, a reciprocal sort of dynamic where companies, you know, uh, were very loyal to, to the business itself.
1: Dude, I, I like that response. You know, it yeah. reminded me of Jim McKelvey. Uh, he started Square with uh, Jack Dorsey. De yes, Lose,
0: remember of course. Lose-Lice? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. everybody's
1: like saying, why are you going for all the little people? It doesn't even make sense. Uh,
0: no money. Yes.
1: And I interviewed yeah. him and we talked about that. So that, that was very reminiscent of that. Interesting.
0: Yep. No, it's, it's the same spirit, right? And it's like understanding you have a responsibility beyond just the business. Of course, you have to be a, a good business person and, and create a, a sustainable operation. But yeah. at the same time, you've got to take a step beyond that.
1: All right, dude. All right. Two more questions for you and then I'll let you go. All right decision-making, how was it so, uh, I'm making an assumption here, how was it so fluid so that you guys got things done quickly? Because you were you were one of the first employees. I think the, I read that you American. were one of the American employee, right? Yeah. First American employee. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm assuming you were there towards somewhat of the beginning of this growth. Yeah. How were decisions made that made the company move so quickly?
0: Okay. First of all, I'll say it wasn't fluid. It was chaotic Um, And that's why actually I left the company after two years. I went went to B school and I thought, you know, we're going to find out the real way of doing things, but I went back and it's still chaotic. Um, So Mm -hmm. I I won't sugarcoat it, but again, I mean, we we'd be in meetings until, you know, late, late night. And I'd sometimes ask like, why are we doing this? Um, But it was a process um, one of, a thorough discussion too of building trust um, and being very, I think Jack created a culture where people are very honest in how they thought and felt about issues. So we got spirited. But I think the, the thing that made it uh, efficient in the end is once you battled it out and you, you argued and you came to decision, then everybody got behind that decision full force and just made it happen. There was no questioning uh, of that afterwards. So there is a level of efficiency where you get the entire team behind something and they go 110% um, after that process is done. And I think that to some extent, that's also where this trust comes in. Like we've we've given consideration to everything and now we're gonna just believe that this is the right way forward. And you know, honestly, sometimes <laughs> you went full steam and you hit a wall and like, oh shoot, this isn't working. And you had to stop and restart. And that didn't sit well with a lot of people particularly those who had work experience in multinationals and other you know kind of more mature organizations they said this is not an efficient process but if you could start stop and and, and pivot fast enough and keep that momentum um then despite those hurdles you were able to get a good result but it you know it, it wasn't it wasn't easy and i think that over time, we've become more efficient in making in making the decisions that are uh, with less of those kinds of mistakes. Mm-hmm. But I think this happens with any company, right? Um, oh, yeah. And I think it's really about the mentality of the team and, and whether or not they're able to weather that, um, you know, the, the volatility of, 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 you know, that situation.
1: That's true, man. All right, where do we go and follow you? Are you on Instagram? I know you're on LinkedIn because I followed. You I'm on-, on
0: LinkedIn. I I can't keep up with all the other social media platforms. So LinkedIn's the best place to catch right.
1: me. LinkedIn and okay. your name Brian A Wong, right? Yeah, yeah. You're not on TikTok? Come
0: on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? You know what's crazy what? is we can't use TikTok in in China. Whoa! Um, whoa wait, what? Yeah, so there's Douyin, which is the equivalent, but it's the domestic version. And then there's like TikTok, which is the international version of Douyin. Same type of format, but but like there's two versions. Oh, I didn't know that. Wait, what's the what's the Chinese version? How do you spell it? Douyin is D O U Y I N.
1: No way.
0: Yeah. So if you, yeah, if you try and like open up your TikTok in China. Um well I, it just doesn't doesn't work the app doesn't work you got to just download Douyin. No. And I, I noticed there's like some crossover like some people repost the chinese stuff in um in uh, on TikTok but you know it's all in chinese language. So I maybe the idea is that the two you know there's different languages are not going to mix but obviously there's maybe who knows other I considerations.
1: Didn't know that. What is, does, I just know what does Douyin mean anything in chinese?
0: Um, gosh, I haven't, I'm not quite sure like how to translate that, but
1: it doesn't yeah. mean like TikTok, like a little tune or anything. No.
0: no, TikTok is a unique English uh term, I guess they came up with, but it, it,
1: yeah, all right, man. That was fun. I appreciate, I appreciate you doing this. This is great, everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pick up the book, The Dao of Alibaba, Brian Wong. Uh, I, we'd love to have you on again on on something else, man. This is uh, been oh, fun. I love that.
0: I appreciate it. I'll, I'll, I'll provide a better background next time. <laughs> I'll, I'll take your word
1: for it. Or we can have the swimming pool too, man. I don't mind.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, we'll, we'll wait for that. Uh, I love yeah, it. Thanks yeah. a lot, Tristan. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.